Today, you'll get to hear my conversation with Portia Mount, Vice President and Global Leader of Strategic Marketing at Ingersoll Rand. She is not only a marketer, she is also a writer and is co-author of Kick Some Glass, 10 Ways Women Succeed at Work on Their Own Terms, Beating the Imposter Syndrome, and Leadership Brand, Deliver on Your Promise. I'd be lying if I didn't say that I was a little intimidated heading into this discussion. We have a lot in common, but Portia has amazing credentials and has accomplished so many of my dreams. She's written a book, she's done TEDx talks, and she's even been featured in the New York Times. She has served for some time as the chief of staff for the Center of Creative Leadership. So I knew she knew what she was talking about, and this would be a very interesting conversation. What I learned, though, was that Portia is also unbelievably real and very easy to talk to. She has great thoughts on how to be a great leader without sacrificing yourself or your beliefs, as well as how not to question your worth or value. Her thoughts on how to tackle all the areas we struggle with as marketers, from digital to branding, are amazing. She is one of the most well-rounded marketers I've had the pleasure of speaking to, and I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. First of all, thank you for doing this. That means so much to me. Oh, sure. Absolutely. (laughs) But would love for you just to start by telling us a little bit about your story, sort of where did you grow up? You know, how did you enter the working world? And then tell us a little bit about where you are today. So my name is Portia Mount and I am, I like to call myself a free range Californian (laughs) because I was born and raised in California but my career has pretty much taken me all over the country and around the world. And I did not start out wanting to be a marketer. I have to say, I thought early in my life, I would be a documentary filmmaker. Wow. Uh, I got an undergrad degree in anthropology and I was really passionate about East Asian studies, spent a lot of time in Japan studied the language for many, many years, ended up getting a master's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in cultural anthropology. And I sort of stumbled into, you know, this kind of goes with my philosophy that you can try to plan your career all you want, but the reality is, is that my own experience mirrors a lot of the conversations I've had with other leaders, which is life is kind of a can be sort of a meandering trail, but of really interesting experiences. So my first job out of grad school, because I'd spent a number of years overseas after graduating from college, was at a legal aid, and I was hired as a fundraiser. But what became really clear to me in that first job when I was like 24, 25 years old was that there were a lot of misconceptions about what legal aid was. And what I didn't know at the time is that pretty much set the stage for how I've always tackled all of my roles in my career, which is to build things, is to see a need and to take that job and solve problems that I thought needed to be solved. And and so in that case, it was not only to raise money for legal aid, but it was to also change the perception of why do low-income people need lawyers and to tell the story of legal aid, which was about combating elder abuse and redlining and helping women get out of abusive relationships 
and making sure they had the right legal counsel to do that. And so that was a really rewarding job. And I eventually left the Midwest because I just had a passion to work internationally. Okay. And I knew I really wanted to have a global career and work globally. And so leveraged my network and ended up at Burson Marsteller, New York. Time is one of the largest PR firms in the world. And that kind of started me on the path that I am on now. I worked in New York for a number of years and then eventually they sent me to China and I was in China for a couple of years working on lots of interesting client accounts, a lot of brand marketing, a lot of public affairs and some investor relations. I then came back and went to work for Edelman in Chicago. Okay. And then that's where I focused on pharmaceuticals. And so, and really that was very much a straight marketing role and working on a number of blockbuster drugs, billion dollar drugs. And that was really interesting. And pharmaceutical companies are so interesting. I'm fascinated by the R&D process and how you launch a drug into a market, especially when they're already highly competitive drugs. I worked on the on the drug Humira, and, uh, and so that was super rewarding. I didn't think I wanted to go client side. I was always looking for interesting challenges, really interesting, complex challenges. And so in that interim, I met my husband, and we ended up moving to the South in North Carolina, where I was recruited to take on an executive leadership role at the Center for Creative Leadership. And I stayed there for a decade. I built the marketing function from the ground up and uh, was on the executive team there. And about halfway into my 11-year tenure, I also became chief of staff to the CEO. That work with the Center for Creative Leadership was really the connection to leadership. And that kind of launched a whole other set of really interesting experiences in addition to being a marketer. Right. So that's kind of the short version (laughs) of of my career trajectory. (laughs) What an interesting story. And I love that you have both the agency side and the client side experience. Tell me a little bit more about CCL before we move on to Ingersoll Rand. It's one of the premier consultancies on leadership, and they focus specifically and exclusively on leadership leadership training and leadership research. So, um, and they consult with about half of the Fortune 500s around the world, locations all around the world, and serve about 15,000 leaders around the world. And so it's a fascinating place to work. It is a place that is filled with people who have backgrounds in consulting, behavioral sciences, leadership. And so I found it really, really rewarding to be there. And so in addition to running marketing, I also ended up training as well, training the most senior women's program, the women's leadership experience. And I'm certified in a lot of psychometric instruments. And so, and I really like the combination. I think as a practitioner, the closer you are to what you're selling, it just makes you better. But I also found kind of along the way that I had a knack for coaching And for being in the classroom, I think as a practicing leader, I wasn't, I wasn't merely someone who was just training all the time. I was a practicing leader. And so I could bring the lessons that I was getting from leading a team of 50 marketers around the world and also being a working mother and also trying to have work-life balance and to bring that both into the classroom as well as 
into executive coaching. And so I had the opportunity to coach a lot of really interesting, high-performing leaders um, from, you know, all kinds of really interesting companies. Um, the chief of staff piece came really kind of as a, oh, by the way. And everything you've said so far, I can tell, you know, it seems like you're a cause marketer. You take things on, you find a problem, you fix it. Um, you mentioned, yeah. you know, really liking to be close to what you're selling, which I think is so true of any marketer too, especially as technology adapts and changes, being able to speak to those concepts. But at your time at CCL, you also wrote a couple books. Is that right? Yeah, I was learning a lot and I was starting to form a point, a really strong point of view around things that I cared about. So one started out with just writing on the imposter syndrome. And then I did another kind of shorter book on brand, so personal brand, leadership brand. And then most recently, a full length book with my friend and former colleague, Jennifer Martineau, called Kick Some Glass. And um, which was really aimed at mid-level women, women looking to rethink their careers. And that book came about because I was reading all of these books, Lean In and Confidence Code. And in my quote unquote spare time, I spent a lot of time traveling around the country speaking on this issue of how women can get into the arena and really fulfill their highest potential. Something I'm super passionate about. Well, like I said, I started it last night and I love the concepts in it. I've, I'm just now at a stage in my career where I'm learning about things like, you know, the trade-offs we make as women and the decisions we make and what to focus on. Right. Not to mention that I think that a lot of us as marketers have maybe a dream someday to be able to do this. As you can tell, Portia is a very accomplished woman in her field, and she's also a mom of two young kids. While writing her latest book, she adopted her daughter through a kinship adoption, which I thought was incredible. I wanted to get her words of wisdom on being a highly motivated and driven career woman while also wanting to have a very integrated life with a family. And her response was very insightful. So first of all, I think that anyone who says they have it all figured out is not telling the sure. truth. I think we're constantly recalibrating to what is most important. I, I think the most important thing is understanding what your definition of success is and then prioritizing around that. I just had dinner with a really fabulous friend of mine who is um, a very successful executive in Silicon Valley. And she said something that I love, which is it's not about what is what are you going to say no to? It's about what are you going to say hell yes to, right. right? And I think the more I think about it, the more I think that's kind of, I hope I can say that word. That's <laughs> Absolutely. And so I really try to, so, you know, for me, the hell yeses are around my kids, around my family, and around really working on interesting, challenging work where I know I can contribute to, and everything else I say no to. And so I wish I volunteered more, but I don't have time because my kids are very young. I wish my house was cleaner, but it's passable, you know, it's like no one's gonna, we can find things and (laughs) it's orderly. I yeah. wish I had more time to hang out with my friends, but again, you know, I'm work is very consuming right now. So I've just learned to be okay with where I am and the choices that I've made for myself right now. And I think it's that simple and, and it's different for me than it is for other people. And that's what I try to help when I'm speaking is to encourage people to think about is it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's all about what's important for you and what's and what aligns to those values, those core values that drive you and get you up every day. And 
I'm excited to wake up on Mondays and go to work and to have a great week and to do the things that I know are important to me personally and then also to be a great mom. And it's kind of that's it for right now. It's kind of that simple could change in a couple of years, but right now it works for me. And when it doesn't, I'll change. Absolutely. So that's my secret. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk about your current role at Ingersoll Rand. So, you know, for those listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with the brand, talk a little bit about sort of how Ingersoll Rand is a parent company and the sub-brands within and kind of your role in managing all of that. Yeah, and so this, it's a really interesting time for Ingersoll Rand now because in April we announced the spinoff of our industrial sector Right now, we are currently a diversified industrial. So we have Ingersoll Rand as the parent company. We have some really long-time storied brands, including Train and Thermo King, which are really climate solutions-focused companies. But we also have Aero, uh, which is fluid management. And there's a recent acquisition there, a PFS, which is a kind of a similar company. Club Car, which is an interesting company because it's, golf carts, but they also have an they also have an industrial solution. And so I was brought in to this role because like a lot of industrials, Ingersoll Rand was not necessarily known. It's an engineering, it's a technical company. And so the focus of the company is really about operational excellence, engineering excellence, the best technology. And the company for the better part of almost a decade has been on a functional excellence journey, which is what has made Ingersoll Rand a top quartile company. Mm-hmm. And so I was brought in to drive functional excellence around marketing. Okay. And and so my job was really to build a center of excellence for marketing and, you know, and essentially to raise the game across all the 10 business units. Okay. Um, and so that's been really interesting. In addition to building the Ingersoll Rand brand. Okay. Um, a lot of people actually don't know Ingersoll Rand. They're probably more familiar with, I mean, certainly Train, which is a household brand. It's a global brand. Uh, certainly Thermo King, which is focused on marine and transport refrigeration. But no one knew the Ingersoll Rand brand. And when they did know it, they were like, oh, you're the heavy equipment company. The brand associations were with companies that the that Ingersoll Rand didn't even own it anymore. Well, as I mentioned, we just announced the spinoff of the industrial sector. That separation, that deal is underway. So we paused. So I was starting out on really rethinking the Ingersoll Rand brand. We announced the separation. And so now I'm in the process of of naming the new climate-focused company because post-separation, the Ingersoll Rand brand name will go to the industrial sector. Okay. And the remaining company, the Remain Co., will be a pure play climate company, which okay. is really where the trends are, right? And so I am in the process of leading the process of naming the new company and developing the brand strategy for the new company. And that's, there's not a lot to share right now. Sure. <laughs> But um, that's been underway um, for the last couple of months. And I think by the end of this year, we will be announcing the new name um, of the company. That's kind of the target right now. And it's super interesting. That is so interesting. I think, you know, I spend a lot of my time in the technology and data space. So it's always so fun to hear about a project where you're really going back to the roots of branding, you know. So what are you loving about that process right now? And what are you learning? 
Yeah, I, what I love about the process is the opportunity to rethink how to position an industrial company. Okay. I think one that was perceived to be very high-performing, producing really high, superior quality products, but maybe thought of it of as a bit old school. Sure. And in a way that's really actually not in alignment with how the leadership are. We have really progressive leadership, a really progressive culture. Ingersoll Rand is a fabulous place to work, really socially conscious, progressively minded around inclusion and diversity. And those things don't pop out with the current brand positioning. And so I think the opportunity is to really amp up deep commitment the company has around sustainability. And we think about sustainability broadly beyond just being environmentally conscious, but about it's really sort of the both the um, social community as well as our impact on the climate. And to be able to amplify that, I think, in a much more effective way. And I think to position us as a more digitally savvy company, those are things I think that's what the opportunity that the brand presents to us. And then to tell that story anew in the market is a pretty, these are when your client side are sort of once in a, if you're lucky, you get a couple of these in your career of your client side. Obviously, if you're on the agency side, you do it all the time or you do it frequently. Sure. I think there's an opportunity for marketers who really love the challenge to kind of get in there and, and help because marketing is absolutely an enabler of growth. It's incredibly important for the customer experience. And I think there's an opportunity to reposition the function within the industrial sector. That's awesome. And I love that you use the word customer experience. So can you talk a little bit about your philosophy there and sort of what advice you have as it relates to, you know, really getting to those human stories, even in the context of a legacy industrial brand? So again, coming into being new to industrial, the thing that I noticed was just looking at all the industrial marketing was it was very industrial. And the reality is, is that we're talking to people and they have families and they shop on Amazon or they go to Walmart and they are at basketball games on the weekends, you know, and I feel like sometimes we act as if somehow when that customer goes to work, they forget all that. They just leave everything behind. When in reality is we all love human interfaces. We want experiences. We want that speak to us. Right. And that acknowledge and see who we are and that help us get to what we're looking for more quickly. I mean, we are in an age and I think if you have young kids, you really understand this. We have so much information coming at us. People don't want to take the time to weed through lines and lines of text and flat imagery. You know, we're on iPads, we're on iPhones, we're on Androids, we have streaming media. And so part of, I think, the challenge for us as industrial marketers is B2B marketing is always a little behind B2C marketing. But I think if I can encapsulate it is, I think B2B needs to look more like B2C. And this is not a new concept. I think it's happening. But I think In industrial B2B, we are slower to recognize it. I do think as we have demographic changes, as our customers get younger, 
as leaders get younger, I think we will evolve naturally, but I think the opportunity is to push that faster. Absolutely. And so I think as we as industrial marketers have to recognize that the old school way of talking to our customers has to evolve because in their everyday lives, they're already experiencing that. Getting those ideas airtime can be challenging, but I think it's I think it's worth challenging because otherwise we're going to get left behind. And there's no reason to, by Absolutely. the way, and there's no reason to be left behind. You know, I, I think for a long time when we were in the era of branding, talking to customers and doing actual research in the field, you know, was really important. And a lot of uh, marketers were investing in it. As data became more available and at our fingertips, people fell away from taking the time to do that. Um, so I guess, one, I want to know your philosophy about that as you're approaching some of these really big sort of initiatives for your organization. But then, two, along with understanding, you know, who your users are and their touch points and, and their customer experience, how is Ingersoll Rand leveraging the power of technology to sort of automate some of those things? So first of all, I do think we probably are at a point where we have data overload. And yet I think, and I certainly think this is true for us, we're still not optimizing it. When I built this marketing center of excellence, we decided to have a marketing technology and operations team that really focused on understanding how to optimize marketing technology. And so we did, we hired a terrific firm who came in and did an audit for us of our marketing technology, helped us benchmark, and then helped us lay out our roadmap. I will tell you the information we got back (laughs) from that audit was pretty depressing. And I think it's, again, in my sort of philosophy of radical honesty, so the good news that we learned was, was that we had a lot of best-in-class technology across all these different businesses. You know, the bad news was most of it wasn't optimized. We, had to, we probably had too much technology. We weren't using it. You know, it's not just about the, the technology. You have to have the capability. You have to have the people who know how to use it. And so there was a gap between the technology we had and the fact that And I think, by the way, I don't think this is an unusual challenge. I think it's probably pretty typical of a lot of marketing teams that are really starting to figure out how to harness the power of the data is you have to have marketers who have some really good fundamentals in analytics. All that to say, we are on a journey and we're starting with really looking at our data layer and getting all of these systems to talk to one another so that when a customer comes to us, it's not Groundhog Day where we're seeing this customer as a new customer, depending on what touch point they came in through. Right. That's where we're starting that. We're starting that journey there. And I think we have, a, I think, a good roadmap. You have to check in with me in eight months to a year. But I'm really excited because it'll free marketers up to do less manual work of pulling reports and trying to make sense then really saying, okay, what is this information telling me about Misty, right? And like, what, and what does Misty prefer and who is Misty and how do we best serve her needs and only put the most relevant opportunities in front of her and engage Misty in the way she wants to be engaged. And again, we see this in consumer products already. Amazon does it remarkably well, but we could probably name a number of other retailers. I think Nordstrom does it quite well. 
and even my grocery store, who I order online from, I'm tempted to call them up and say, hush, what are you, like, what are the platforms you're using? Like, because I've shopped there enough, they literally cut my shopping time down in half because I can go onto the website. The things that I like to order are already there. They're already in my shopping cart. They're making other relevant recommendations and they've made my life easier. Absolutely. Uh, and so, and that I think is what the opportunity is for us from the industrial space, whether it's around part, you know, and you think about it, it's about parts, it's about services, it's about warranties, it's about how do we marry all those things together so that when someone's looking for something, we make it seamless, we make it frictionless for them. We always love to have our guests speak their truth to share with us their core beliefs that they have found to be true throughout their careers. Here's what Portia had to say. I want to kind of go through some of our core segments. And the first of that we call speak your truth. I can tell you're very sort of in tune with your values, but if there's something on your heart that, you know, you just really feel like whether it's related to your leadership experience or your marketing experience, what are some things that are are sort of core to your truths? One big lesson I always come back to, and I think it's really important again, especially as a marketer, and oftentimes you're pushing ideas that people aren't ready for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you're doing your job, I think I think the best marketers are a little bit ahead of the curve and they probably say and do things that are maybe a little scary to their leadership and they're pushing ideas as opposed to being kind of status quo. And so one of my biggest lessons is trust your instincts. I trust my instincts. I'm all about data. I'm all about like fact, the fact base. So that's not to say I'm just going off my gut because that's not true. So I always get the fact base. I always get the data, but at the end of the day, I trust my instincts and they, they have never steered me wrong. And the couple of times that I have gone against my instincts, I have deeply regretted it. And so now I say, okay, we have all the information and I shut out the noise and I say, what are my instincts telling me? And I go with that. Oh, that's such good advice. One thing you did mention too about the Ingersoll Ram brand that I'd like you to speak more about, because I think, you know, it it hints towards one of your personal passions, um, even that you speak about a little bit in your book is the idea of being an inclusive and diverse company. So talk about what that's meant to you personally and then sort of how you carry out that value system in your work. Yeah, the people who know me well, I think were really surprised to hear when I said I was going to Ingersoll Rand. And first they were like, well, what? And then they make what? And then why are you going to an industrial company? But you know, we started this conversation talking about values. And One of the things that really impressed me, um, I mean, first of all, our CEO, Mike Lamog, is just an incredible progressive leader. He's just known as Mike. (laughs) And he's the kind of person when he meets you one time, he knows your name. And he has, and I think this is really important for companies who espouse a commitment to progressive, diverse, and inclusiveness is your CEO has to believe it passionately and it has to be driven down into the culture. And I would say that is very much the case that Ingersoll ran. So, you know, I think whether it's hiring more women, industrial companies, often, depending on the sector, there's a dearth of women. I, you know, in fact, I'm, I'm trying to make my three-year-old become an, my three-year-old daughter <laughs> want to be an engineer because I was like, there's going to be a ton of jobs for you. Absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I think it's whether commitment to hiring more people of color hiring more women, the companies made it a strategic priority. And 
not because it's a just check the box, we should do it, it's the right thing to do, but also the data is really clear. Companies perform better when they are diverse, when there are more women leaders, when there are more people of color who are leaders. It is a financial benefit to the company. So I love that about the company, and I'm at the stage in my life where who I work for, what the company represents is really important to me. But by the way, I think to me, it's not a men or women. I think it's a both and. The reality is, if the reality of corporate America today, and even most global companies, is there are more men at the top of those companies than women. That is just, that's not a judgment. It is a fact. And so we need men as allies. And I actually think, again, I can look at my own company as an example, Ingersoll Rand, that there are men who value having diversity on their teams for all the reasons we've said. And so I've often asked, well, what if it's not like that for you? Like, what if it's like a really horrible environment and it's hard to be a woman? And I get asked that question surprisingly a lot. And what I say, and this may not be a popular opinion, is life is too short to work in a place that doesn't value who you are. Absolutely. So if you are able to make a change, and look, sometimes we're in roles and we're in jobs, that's the only job where we, you know, if you're living in a geography where you don't have a lot of options or you know, exceptions to the side, get the hell out of there is what I say. Like, go to some place that values your, your time and treasure that you have to offer. But life is short. And so we deserve to work in environments that honor and support and engage us so that we can add value. We can bring the best that we have to bring to that environment. I think sometimes as leaders, when we rise to these positions that we never expected to be in, we do experience that imposter syndrome that you talked about earlier. And, you know, on the daily, I I look and say, how did I get here? And and am I qualified to do this? You know, so tell me a little bit about why that's an important topic to you and how you see that manifest even still today, perhaps. Yes, I talked about this because early in my, it really crystallized when I had my first international assignment in China, where it was just, I was so overwhelmed and the pressure on my, I put on myself and feeling like I was not doing anything right and feeling like, oh my gosh, the bottom is going to drop out of this thing at any moment. And I had no idea that it was called the imposter syndrome or that the imposter syndrome was a thing, right. uh, but it is. And I think once I really came to grips with it and just realized, and some of it's just come from experience. Some of it has come from saying, you know what, Portia, like you've actually done pretty well through your life. (laughs) If you look at the objective data, if I just objectively look at what I've been able to do and some of which I've I've planned, most of which has been totally unintentional, right? (laughs) I've been able to really do great things. And when the worst things have happened, they usually haven't been that bad. Right. right? And so I think some of it is about not living a fear based life and realizing that even when hardships come, you're going to be okay. And And I will also, and I I share this when I'm speaking to is like, I had a couple really, really tragic things that happened in my life that just reframed everything for me. First was the death of my brother in 2012. And during that whole time, it was also going through years of infertility and feeling like my body was failing me. And so I think what I, when I came out through the other side of that, I realized, you know what, I have a great life. 
I'm incredibly blessed to be doing what I'm doing, to have what I have. And you know what? Not everything's going to be perfect. And you know what? I'm okay with that. And so it just really got to be a place of being comfortable with who I am and what I have to contribute and knowing that failure. And I do think that women in particular, we just take failure a lot differently of not over-personalizing when things don't work out, right? And I think that in, I'm speaking in huge generalities, men tend to, I think, better externalize failure a little bit better. Like, oh, wow, well, that kind of sucked. <laughs> let's, know, move and, right. know, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. I even see with my son of like, yeah, you know, right. we didn't, I, you know, we didn't play that well at the game, but oh, well, we'll try it again. You know, yeah, I got, you know, yeah, I should, you know, like I missed all my free throws or, you know, I didn't do that well in the test, but I'm going to try it again tomorrow and it's going to be fine. And I think it's really just kind of changing mindset change. It's changing one's mindset about what success and failure look like and realizing that, you know what, we're all trying to make it work and we're all trying to pretend like we know what we're doing. Totally. Uh, But most of us probably don't really know what we're doing, but we're, we're doing a really good job of faking it. (laughs) We are absolutely. And I, it's just so brave how you have been able to share those stories um, about your brother and, you know, even speaking transparently and vulnerably about your, your infertility issues. I think that you know, and again, it sounds like very trite and maudlin, but life is short. We really don't have any idea what tomorrow brings. So sometimes it boils down to like, do your best and make good choices. That's all it is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. So another segment I want to ask you about, we call OSH. So that's sort of this idea of, oh shit, we've all had times we failed, right? But if there was just one story where you can think of a time where you know, you just screwed up or you really believed in something, but it it didn't come to fruition and what you learned from that. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that like, I don't want to say I'm haunted by it, but it is a life, it's a life lesson that I keep coming back to is in my previous role, we went through a really major rebranding and repositioning. And it was really incredibly rewarding uh, role. And we kind of got down to the 11th hour around the logo. And I think most marketers know logo changes are huge, can be huge emotional things. And lots of people have opinions about what a logo should be. And in this case, the logo for the company hadn't been changed in like decades. At the time I asked my leader, and I also know there was a lot of attachment and or opinions about what the new logo should be among a select number of board members. And I remember asking my leader, like, do you think we should have some board members involved in this? And um, my leader said, no, 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 this is going to be my choice. And, you know, earlier we talked about that pit in the stomach when you're like, this is not going to go well. Like, this is not the right thing. And I sort of ignored that instinct. Well, you can imagine where I'm headed with this because, you know, a month before, three weeks before the launch of this, like, amazing brand, And at the last minute, my leader, you know, he says, we should go ahead and look, you know what, before we share everyone, let's take this, let's take the logo, let's share the logo and the story with the board. And predictably, they hated it. They hated it because, of course, that's what happened. Absolutely. (laughs) And I was completely gut. And they didn't just, like, not like it. Like, they, like, threw up all of it, basically. And And it was horrible. And we ended up having to start over, like, from scratch. 
And, you know, to have, you know, board members who didn't have marketing backgrounds and to basically say, we want 10 more, 10 new options. It was like, it was the, it's what I call the marketer's nightmare. Like everything you don't want to happen, happen. Now I will say the silver lining in the, in this is we came out the other side. It was a smashing success. We got to where we needed to be. And, but it was, I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. I was so upset. I was depressed for, you know, like, how did I allow this to happen? And I just, you know, I had a fabulous colleague. He was, a, he's one of my directors. He was like, Portia, it's over. We have to start over. Let's just move on. Right. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you're right. You're right. <laughs> we just have to move on. And I think, so resiliency is really important in the face of major setbacks. The reality is things don't always go the way you want. So we ended up in a really good place. It was a huge success. I think it brought a lot of value back to the company. I think it clients loved it, you know, we great media coverage, everything, but oh my gosh, it was so epic. (laughs) So how do all these amazing marketers get it done? How do they navigate the complexities of their jobs and how do they lead their teams? What does their leadership style look like? Well, we're about to find out. I think one piece of getting it done is real, being a really good listener and understanding what is driving and motivating the people, the leaders around you. I think especially when you're brought in from the outside to, quote, solve a problem, it can be really easy to sort of just jump into problem-solving mode. And I think it's really important to understand if the problem that was defined for you to solve is actually the problem, right? Because sure. sometimes... A person who's hired you has a perspective and it's not that that perspective is not valid, but oftentimes the people around you may say, well, you know, yeah, we know so-and-so thinks that's really important, but here's what's really important. And so I think being able to discern those things and be able to articulate what you think the problem is based on what you've heard is, and to constantly recheck to confirm or disconfirm what you understand. Like, I don't think it's, it's not a single point in time because the business changes, the market changes. And so you have to be agile. I think that's piece one. I think piece two is just, is really having good relationships across the company. And the best leaders have open and diverse networks. And to be able to, you know, no people in engineering, no people in the commercial organization, no people in HR, because you never know where the solution to your problem is going to come. And have people who can also give you a perspective that you don't see. All right. So I've kept you probably a little bit longer than I should have. I do want to ask you if you had a question for a marketer that we may be interviewing on this podcast, what are some things you're curious about right now? What do you want to know? Oh, what do I want to know? Well, so one, I am also quite interested in what people's failures are. Like most, um, the way my co-author Jennifer and I talked about it was like, what is your most glorious failure? Your most glorious failure. I've shared my most glorious failure. And so I'd love to hear about that because there's always really profound lessons in that. It's something I teach my kids that we learn as much from things that go wrong as we do that things from things that go right. So I'm super interested in that. And I'm always interested from other marketing leaders is what do they think kind of the next frontier is for us as marketing leaders? And I don't mean like the next hot thing, but I mean like, 
what's the next frontier for our role, for our function? I'm very curious because I think marketing, like a lot of roles that have been impacted by technology and data, is changing really, really quickly. And so I think the CMO of 15 years ago or 10 years ago is really different than the CMO today. Absolutely. So I'm looking, I'm looking forward to hearing that those answers. <laughs> I will definitely pass that along. Are there any fears that you have that are, you know, the things that keep you up at night right now? You know, as I mentioned, I'm in the middle of naming. <laughs> and <laughs> and that's a big deal. Absolutely. <laughs> I do wake up in cold sweats around that of, oh my gosh, you know, are we going to be able to do it? What if they don't like it? How many more people have to weigh in on this decision? You know, thoughts become things. I'm a big believer in that. So I try not to amplify my fears. I hope I have more time to slow down and learn more. I'd love to be able to step off the the treadmill, if you will. There's so much to understand about what we're doing and I find like I don't have enough time to read. Right. <laughs> so my hopes are that I continue to really to be able to learn and absorb so I can be more effective. A journal entry that the author Octavia Butler wrote, she basically wrote in this journal entry about how she was going to become a best-selling author and she was going and her words would be read by millions of people and she would get these book awards. And Octavia Butler achieved all of that. But at the end of this entry, she says, she writes, so be it, see to it. And I love that, like, really affirmative, positive, so be it, see to it. That's a little motto of mine of, like, let's, I think let's, as leaders, let's put the affirmative out there. And so be it, let's see to it. Portia, you have been so fun to talk to. I do want you to share, where can we find more information about your book or your blog? What are the resources? Yeah, so um, you can find the book, Kick Some Glass. It's available on Amazon. And if you do get it, please read it and leave a review. And then I have a personal blog, PortiaMount.com. Got it. And it also has all my social media links. I am particularly... I'm fond of Instagram. Got it. Okay. Well, I am going to... But you will find me on Twitter as well. (laughs) Awesome. Well, you are an amazing leader, an amazing marketer, and I hope that we can continue to work together. Thank you. Thank Thank you. This has been a really, really fun time. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Talk soon. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Did you hear what she said? So be it. See to it. Don't you just love that? I think it's so true. So many of us are faced with fears and roadblocks and even feelings of imposter syndrome every day. But as marketers, I think there's something true to our core that lets us just plow through all of that because our world changes so quickly and so fast and we just need to keep moving. So be it, see to it. As we close this episode, I just have to give all of you listening a vote of confidence. We can do hard things and hopefully Portia's accounts of how she's learned to do the same will help you really think ahead to your next big effort. As always, if you like today's conversation, we encourage you to go ahead and listen to the rest of our season one. Just go to marketingsweats.com where you can download all episodes and get the reference links to Portia's books, her TED Talks, her Instagram account, and more. Our next episode is also a good one. I actually took some time to catch up with ex-Caterpillar client turned CXO Jeff Bowman of Titan Machinery. Many listeners will remember Jeff for his time as a business manager at CAT, but his recent experience in the field is worth tuning into. 
As always, feel free to visit Samantha.com for more information or to get in touch. And we'd love that you're here with us. Keep sweating it out, friends. Talk soon. Yeah.